We continue our study in the Gospel of John. If you have a Bible and you'd like to turn there with me, we're going to the end of John chapter 20, where we have the purpose statement that John gives, uh, a kind of a flyover to remind us why he wrote the book, or to not remind us, I guess, to summarize the purpose of all that he has written. Um, one of the most famous photographs ever taken was colloquially called the, great, the Big Blue Marble. It was a picture of the Earth from space, taken in the late 60s, in the year that I was born. And uh, that uh, picture, for the first time, showed us the whole of where we, where we live. It's uh, not that there were any great surprises there, but it was, it was just particularly magnificent to be able to see the whole at once and uh, to, to be able to take in the beauty and the majesty of this home that we enjoy. Well, in a similar way, perhaps, I hope to do the same thing with you today from this passage where John gives us a flyover, gives us the, the big picture of, of why he was written and, and uh, does a kind of summary statement, a purpose statement for the book. And I'm going to try to cover a lot of ground, therefore, and to show you something of the whole today. I hope that uh, you will find it helpful. Here in John chapter 20, let's begin a few verses back where Thomas meets with the Lord and on that first day of the week, uh, the doors being shut, Jesus comes and stands in the midst and says, peace to you. And then verse 27, we, put, we pick up reading here, John twenty twenty seven. Then he, that is Jesus, said to Thomas, reach your finger here and look at my hands and reach your hand here and put it into my side. And do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered him and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And the portion for today. And truly, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing, you may have life in his name. Let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, if these are the purposes for such a great book to be written, we pray that they would be fulfilled and more and more in us strengthen our faith Give us more and more of the life which we crave, which we desire from the deepest part of our inmost bones. We pray that this great power that our Lord has displayed in his many signs would be at work today in each of us as we have this word before us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. It was many years ago that the British agnostic Thomas Huxley was late going from one speaking assignment to another. He rushed into a horse-drawn taxi cab to go from his hotel to the train station, and he had assumed that the hotel doorman who'd loaded his bags had already told the taxi driver where they were going. So when Huxley got in, he simply called out to the driver, drive fast. Well, off they went. And after a short while, Huxley, who was familiar with that area, realized that they were going in the opposite direction of the train station. And he yelled at the driver, do you know where you're going? Without looking back, the driver replied, no, sir, but I'm driving fast. 
Um, obviously, it doesn't do much to go fast if you're not going in the right direction. And yet many people, I fear even some Christian people, live like that. They are going full speed, but they have never stopped to contemplate where they ought to be going and why. Before you know it, life whizzes by and you haven't been going in the right direction. Well, the book of John orients us, doesn't it? It tells us how we may have life and have it for real, to live and to live forever and to have life in his name. And this life, this life-giving word, for this is the reason it's written, has been so blessed to us as we've studied it, to so many people, I suppose, that many more people have come to faith in Jesus Christ reading this Gospel of John than any other part of the Bible. And this is indeed his purpose. But, in fact, John is writing both to Christians and to non-Christians, which is not an easy thing to do. When we come to this book of John, we are able to find the Lord Jesus in a way that we can understand, that even a child can understand. But it's also so dramatic and majestic and awe-inspiring, and we find that it always has much to teach us. This is, uh, in some ways, the easiest gospel, and in other ways, the most difficult of the gospels. One scholar called it complexity wrapped in simplicity, that this gospel is an ocean where little children play and where great ships sink. I think we've seen something of that as we've gone through. It's written in third grade Greek. Uh, John is always assigned first to Greek students. We are very thankful for that. It's written that any child could read and understand, but it has profound depths, such that for for the first many centuries, the great troubles that plagued the church, well, the Gospel of John was front and center as they tried to plumb the deepest depths of the divine mysteries. And if you've never investigated who Jesus is, if you've never put your trust in him, then John is writing for you to believe that you may find life in his name. If you're a new Christian, there is much in John to inform and strengthen your faith. If you have been a Christian for years, well, you find there are still fathomless depths to ponder and great things to inspire and encourage you. John began his book with the majestic prologue, setting forth the theme of his book, that Jesus was and is the Word. The Word who was with God, and who was God in the beginning. The Word that became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. That was the beginning. And here, where I started to read, we have the climax of the book. I don't think I called attention to that, but the book begins with that note, and here, having seen all the signs and the works of the Lord, Thomas bows before the Lord and makes this confession, my Lord and my God. That is where we also are to be at this point. It was C.S. Lewis that asked, what are we to make of Christ? There's no question of what we can make of him. It's entirely a question of what he intends to make of us. You must accept or reject the story, the things that he says are very different from anything any other teacher has said. Others may say, this is the truth about the universe, and this is the way you ought to go. But he says, I am the truth. I am the way. I am the life. No man can reach absolute reality except through me, End quote. The point he is making here is that uh, 
we sometimes uh, say, what are we going to make of Jesus? But at this point, we realize that everything in our world and in our lives is completely in his hands. What will he make of us? That is the question. We have come that we might believe in him and have life in his name. That is the purpose of John's writing. And I'd like to cover this short summary statement using three key words from this summary, a summary of the summary, signs, believing, and life. So not a very fancy outline today. I grant you it's not even alliterated, but I hope that you can remember this is right from the passage. Signs, believing, and life. He spends a whole verse on signs. That'll be our first uh, point from verse 30, where we read that Jesus truly did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. Um, That is to say, John has been extremely selective. He has omitted many very important things that the other Gospels contain. As a kind of companion volume to the others, you notice that as we've gone through, there's been no mention of Christ's birth, his baptism, his temptation, There's no list of the 12 disciples. There are no stories of Jesus casting out demons, not one. No parables. John tells us that he saw Jesus' glory, we saw Jesus' glory, but he doesn't mention the transfiguration, even though he was one of the eyewitnesses. He includes Jesus' promise that he's preparing a place for us in heaven and that he will return for us, but he omits all of the lengthy prophetic discourses John gives us the longest and most detailed account of the events of the upper room, the night that Jesus was betrayed, but he never mentions the Lord's Supper. He doesn't tell us about Jesus' agony in the garden, although we do learn from John that it was Peter that whacked off Malchus's ear that Jesus healed. And although John records the risen Jesus telling Mary to tell the disciples that he will ascend to the Father, there is not even any account of the ascension. The By one scholar's count, John has 93% original material not found in other Gospels. Well, this is interesting. He's obviously been extremely selective. This is not like what we read elsewhere. What has he given us? Well, he has given us in this summary signs. Rather than referring to Jesus' mighty works as miracles or Wonders, terms that the other gospel writers use, John generally calls them signs. Signs. All right, what is a sign? Well, a sign is something that points to something else. It's not the thing. It directs our attention to a greater reality. So let's say maybe your child is sick with a raging temperature. She has a terrible pain in her abdomen. You put her in the car and you speed off down the road. And finally, you get to the sign at the side of the road that says hospital. And your heart's filled with joy. So what do you do? Do you stop at the sign? Do you get out of the car and say, oh, good. Here is what we've been looking for. Do you hug and kiss the sign? No, of course you don't. That would be foolish. You are directed by the sign, then, to the reality that you seek, that glorious, life-giving, life-saving reality to which the sign has pointed you. That's the purpose of the sign, to point to something else. I, I, I mentioned that because as we've read throughout this book, so many people saw the signs with 
great enthusiasm and excitement. And this is what we need. But they stopped there. Uh, they loved the healing. If this is what Jesus wants to do, I'm in. They, they might have heard Jesus has a wonderful plan for your life. And that's great. This is great. I have a wonderful plan for my life. And if Jesus is doing that, wonderful. They loved the multiplied loaves. They followed him. But they didn't love so much the one who did all those things. They, they hugged and kissed the sign. We read in chapter 12, although Jesus had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him. And John is pointing out here that it's, it's not the signs that save, that these signs point to Jesus who saves. The signs point us to him, Jesus. Christ's miracles are first and foremost signs of who the Lord is and what he's come to do. The kind of salvation our Lord and our God has come to bring to this world. They point us to his love and care. Jesus could have done any number of things to demonstrate his wonder-working power, right? He could have moved Mount Hermon from one place to another. Wow, that would be amazing. That would surely have gotten everybody's attention. But what kinds of signs does he do? Acts of compassion, not just raw power. And I, I think we take this for granted. The works that he did signified the kind of Savior he was, human redemption, grace, love, life. Out of the countless miracles that John, that John could have chosen, he, he says he's been extremely selective, and he's picked out seven. Uh, there's there's uh, some discussion about how we should count those seven, or the, even if there are seven, but pretty sure that there are, not counting the later catch of fish or Jesus' resurrection, but surely we've seen these seven that he picked on purpose to tell us the kind of Lord and God we have. That Jesus, at the beginning, turned water at a wedding into wine, showing us that our Lord is over all creation and provides abundant, joyous salvation for his people. It is revealing the depth of his glory to the disciples as our bridegroom. Jesus healed the royal official's son at a great distance with a word, learning that Jesus is the Lord who commands the power of life and death. One of my favorite authors, J.C. Ryle, says that he before whom no bodily disease proved incurable is mighty to cure the ailment of the soul. He is able to make us completely whole. Now, number three, Jesus healed that, that lame man by the pool of Bethesda on the Sabbath, showing that he is the Lord of the Sabbath, exposing the impotence and foolishness of legalistic, ritualistic religion, as there was some back and forth about that. Uh, Jesus fed the 5,000 men plus women and children with only five loaves and two fish, the only miracle, if I'm not mistaken, that's recorded elsewhere in the Gospels, picturing Jesus as a kind of new or fulfillment of Moses, the one who has come to lead his people to the promise, and more than that, to be the very bread of life, to feed us everlastingly. Fifth, Jesus walked on water as his disciples struggled against the waves, demonstrating, again, Lord over creation, including every trial, including even when we don't understand his ways, even when we have lost all hope and strength. He comes to us. 
that Jesus healed the man born blind, showing us that he is truly the light of the world, the one who imparts spiritual sight to the spiritually blind. And of course, Jesus is the one who raised Lazarus from the dead, showing us that we too, that you too can have life in his name. There is no cause for despair that in all these things, there is no broken heart he can't heal, no wound of conscience that he cannot cure, no life that he cannot redeem, no problem that he cannot solve. John has brought these seven together and welded together as no other author has done in the Bible. The history of Christ's life with the meaning or significance of that history. That after Jesus feeds the 5,000, he says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. Before opening the eyes of the man born blind, he says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Before he raises Lazarus from the dead, he he says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will... Uh, will live even if he dies. These uh, seven I am statements uh, in the Gospel of John flesh it out. I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. I am the true vine, and so forth here. These signs are welded to the revelation of Jesus in his ministry and history to show the kind of Lord that we have to to, to, to draw in our hearts, to say what a gracious Savior, to show his compassion for the needy, the revelation of his sympathy and kindness, the poor who need his care, receive it without charge, and none are turned away. They are all healed. Now, if you went to a shrine in that day, thought to have healing powers in the Hellenistic world, of which there were a few famous ones, you would have to pay a fee. But Christ's healing comes free to all comers, his great heart for the poor and needy. He has not come, though, to grant merely a temporary healing or a healthier life, although we are encouraged to pray for such things. But he has come to give eternal life. He came not merely to rearrange the chairs on the sinking Titanic and making people feel a little more comfortable in a sin-cursed world. He says these are signs that I've come to redeem it all. I have come to make my blessings flow far as the curse is found and to crush the head of the serpent. These miracles are first, in John's book, signs of the Lord, what he has come to do, the kind of salvation he's bringing. Or as Spurgeon wrote, these, are, these signs are sermons to the eye, just as his spoken discourses were sermons in the ear. That's how they're set before us like a picture book of his saving power. Miracles. But these miracles, as I say, are not the most important part of Christ's work. He makes that very clear himself, how a sick person may well be healed and yet remain in his sins. Many were in that day. They might have lauded him as a healer, but they did not believe in him as their savior. And it was Luther that pointed out that it wasn't the Lord's power that saved us, but his weakness as he at last died on the cross. The miracles, you see, were not ultimately for themselves, but for the gospel's sake, that seeing these signs, that we might be believers 
in him unto everlasting life. That is the goal. And so we come now from the signs to point two, believing. Verse 31, the next thing we read, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Matthew uses the verb to believe 11 times. Mark uses it 14 times. Luke uses it nine times. John uses the verb to believe an astonishing 98 times. This is a key word, an important note by which we are able to have the purpose of this gospel set before us. And it shows us, the book shows us not only how faith begins in Nicodemus and many others, right? But then how it grows. And it very clearly shows us, by the way, that, that you can trust in Christ and still face a great many doubts and difficulties. <laughs> Even where we started reading, as Thomas had stumbled and Jesus comes to lift him up. Christ's disciples, we read in this book, believed in Jesus when they first met him through the testimony of John the Baptist recorded in chapter 1. That's how the book began. But then we read those same disciples believed when they saw Jesus perform his first miracle, turning the water into wine. They saw the sign and they believed and put their faith in him. All right, well then we read about this again and again. Um, Jesus, uh, for instance, said that they needed to believe when he was about to raise Lazarus from the dead. He's, Lazarus has died, and I'm glad you weren't there so that you may believe. Okay? Uh, we, we, we read just a few weeks ago in chapter 20, in the previous chapter, that, uh, no, sorry, at the, end of, at the beginning of this chapter, rather, that uh, John made it first into the empty tomb and saw Jesus' grave's clothes and believed. See, how many times do these people have to believe? <laughs> right. What's going on? Um, obviously, Thomas had yet to believe in Jesus, uh, th that he was a living Lord anyway. Uh, so he had to see the risen Savior for himself and put his hands and so forth. And Jesus said to him, don't be unbelieving, as you have been, but believing. So this is curious. This, this book shows us that faith in Christ uh, is something which must grow and expand, which must come again and again and again into our lives with, with new power. It's, it's not that Thomas didn't believe anything about Jesus, of course, but that he, he had struggles. He had troubles. He had doubts. And, and, and we, too, have these trials and troubles and struggles and doubts. And, and, and I, take, I take great comfort from these disciples who, who had the same experience as you and me. Their faith simply had to grow by experience as they more and more saw the Lord at work and were able to put more and more trust and confidence in Him, right? Trust is something that's built over time, and so it is with the Lord. And time and again, they, they kind of get to the end, and they, they think, well, what's going to happen here, right? Uh, come on, let's go and raise Lazarus from the dead, Jesus tells them in chapter 11. And Thomas says, well, let's go so we can die with him, right? I mean, Th Thomas at that point th thinks that 
we're, we're just going to go back to Bethany, and, and Jesus is going to die, and we might as well just die with him, right? Uh, Jesus wants to go to raise Lazarus from the dead. It, it just shows you um, that, that believing in Jesus. As we've gone through this book, I hope your faith has been strengthened, that it needs to be our constant uh, focus for growth as we open our hearts to the Lord, as we say, lead on, O King Eternal, and that we might truly have life and not be like the sniveling Thomas, let's go, we might die with him. No, let's have some confidence in the Lord, even when we can't see how, right? Now, believing is very important. We've seen a great many people in this book not believe. And, and, and somebody today might, might say, okay, yeah, they saw the signs and they believed. And if I could see a sign, then I might believe. Well, that might be true. That might not necessarily be true, though, because John showed us so many people who saw the very same signs and only believed for a short time if they believed at all. They got some temporary benefit, and it says they believed for a time, but no, no, no change. Um, Nicodemus, he was so impressed by the signs. Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do the signs that you can do unless God is with him. And Jesus didn't say, well, what impressive faith. He said, look, I tell you the truth. Unless one's born again, he can't see the kingdom of God. Okay? You can see the signs. You can be very moved by them. But unless you're born again, you will never see life and the Savior, uh, author of it. Okay, so uh, some people then, as now, even had trouble believing that Jesus could do such signs. Made some comment about that earlier. Machen referred to that. It's a a modern age. How can we believe such things? Look, I I, I don't blame you. I've never seen such things. Um, Although I think that if people 100 years ago could see what, what, what we are doing nowadays with science and technology and being able to ask questions and get answers on our phones, and they, they would think, this is magic, right? Uh, modified DNA? What's that, they would ask, right? Um, but if man can so affect the system of nature with medicine, transportation, technology, communication, why in the world would we think it unscientific to believe that the one who made this whole system of nature and controls it should not be able to do as he wills, right? These signs are intended to be evidence that this is no ordinary man, that this is God incarnate, the Lord in Christ. And before Jesus' time, you know, they had other people boasting about miracles. They had other uh, claimants to the Messiah. One man, he promised to part the Jordan River Another claimant to be the Messiah said that he would cause the walls of Jerusalem to fall. But you know what happened, right? I mean, the river kept flowing and the walls stood firm and everyone immediately forgot about those men, right? Something very, very different happened with Jesus. His fame instantly and permanently spread far beyond Israel and even to the surrounding regions because of the countless mighty works that he did. Even his enemies we're compelled to say that he is doing this of the, by the power of the devil. Even a few hundred years later, the Jewish Mishnah explains Jesus by saying that he had learned magic while in Egypt. I think that's a telling admission. It's because once you admit that Jesus is Lord and God, that all these miracles 
far from being hard to believe, are, are virtually inevitable, part and parcel of what must have happened if such a one has been born among men. There were blind people leaping and dancing for joy, seeing for the first time the dead, living, the people turning out by the thousands and thousands, so that another writer says, uh, uh, I think it's Mark, he couldn't even, he couldn't even walk through town. Such a tremendous revolution in that generation. He changed their lives. He showed them a whole new life. And how often those disciples must have remembered these things. Imagine Peter, an older man, standing at the bedside of a loved one, weeping perhaps and yet remembering what he had seen from Jesus. And what cause can there be ultimately of fear or despair if one knows and trusts such a mighty Savior who has vanquished death, who can raise the dead with a word, to have such confidence or faith is what it truly means if we are going to live. And that is our third and final point today in our flyover, life. Life, verse 31, and that believing you may have life in his name. That word life occurs 36 times in the gospel, more than any other in the New Testament, any other book. Does he mean that when we die, our souls will dwell with him? Yes. Does he mean that we will forward to the resurrection of the dead? Yes. It's certainly true that death, the great enemy, has been overcome by Jesus and his resurrection. But the grand emphasis of this book is the good news that Jesus has come now, right now, to give life to dead people. Do you realize that? It says it again and again in various ways. Chapter 5, Most assuredly I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. He has come to raise the dead. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. And death describes all that sin has produced, right now included. All the misery, the isolation, the unhappiness, the failure, the frustration, the disappointment, the fear, the despair of life, the addictions, the unfulfilled longings, the desperate ache of what it is to be without God in the world, hopeless. The Lord truly spoke to Adam when he said, In the day that you eat it, you shall surely die. And things fell apart. Everything else that we read is death. And imagine, if you will, a world of nothing but death. For when people carry this state of death with them into the world to come, it's what the Bible very ominously calls the second death. That is to say, just more of the same waste and want and misery without end. This is death. It's already present. And the opposite, the grand emphasis of this book, is life. To be understood the same way. The wholeness of life with a capital L, full of the richness, integrity, satisfaction, and joy. 
that comes from knowing the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Life itself is found here. To have hearts full to the brim with hope and expectation and to be thrilled at the wonder of what is even now going on. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. It is to share in Christ's life. John describes its blessings from the very first chapter in a quick flyover. We become children of God. We drink of living water that quenches our thirst at last. We are delivered from God's judgment, reconciled, satisfied with Jesus as our bread of life, walking in his light so that we do not stumble in the darkness any longer, our lives fruitful to eternity, enjoying God's love which fills us with unspeakable joy. All these and many, many more blessings that he's described to us are summed up in this potent term, life, eternal life. Some of you might need a miracle, but ultimately it's not miracles you need. It's Jesus you need. And if you have him, you have life. No matter what miseries you have to put up with at the moment, you have life. So don't just seek the gift. Seek the giver. And then you will have all things. Okay. Signs. Believing. Life. There's the big blue marble. There's the world of the Gospel of John in one shot. In conclusion, John has recorded two great responses of men to the Son of God. When life and light and love came into the world, what was the response? Well, some unspeakably tragic and some unspeakably blessed. On the one hand, well, John began by saying he was in the world and the world was made through him and the world didn't know him. He came to his own and his own did not receive him. Unspeakably tragic. Many people have struggled to present Jesus in a different way, one that might be more appealing to modern people in their modern thinking and desires. But, as one man helpfully writes, we are fooling ourselves if we think we can ever make the authentic gospel popular. It is too simple in an age of rationalism, too narrow in an age of pluralism, too humiliating in an age of self-confidence, and too demanding in an age of permissiveness. Now, ain't that the truth? Uh, people could hear this, the best news in the world, as, even as they saw the most mighty works that they've ever seen, um, and go, Jesus, hmm. It didn't agree with them any more then than it does now. But... John goes on to say, as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born, not of blood or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but of God. It uses the most striking terms, death to life. That is the difference. What would, you, what would you like? I read part of an article recently by Federica Matthews Green, a syndicated columnist uh, for NPR. 
not that I read NPR's blog, just happened to be called to my attention. She was reminiscing about her becoming a Christian. And, and I, I loved it for its uh, kind of brutal honesty. She, she writes, um, almost 24 years ago, I walked into a church, a Hindu, and I walked out a Christian. I had, I had had an unexpected confrontation with the presence of one I discovered to be my Lord, and I was set reeling. I knew I needed operating instructions quickly, and particularly wanted to find out who this Jesus was. I, I hunted up a Bible, a pocket-sized King James with print several microns high, and plunged into the gospel. I disliked it from the start. Jesus was often abrupt and hard-edged. I disagreed with some of the things he said. I was offended, but something had happened in my heart. The confrontation had, in the church had knocked a hole in my ego. I knew at last I didn't make the world. I didn't know everything. And it was time for me to sit down, shut up, and listen. Her words. I kept working my way through the Gospels, and they began working their way through me. There are still parts of the Bible I don't like, but I like the parts that I don't like. Because I know that's where I need to listen harder. End quote. So we have before us, brothers and sisters, in the Gospel of John, one of the greatest, most beautiful, compelling portraits of the Lord Jesus Christ. Per perhaps the most magnificent, right? And I, I say to you, it is ours to listen harder. Every one of you. Every one of you find areas where you're struggling. And you might say, uh, that's a hard word, Lord. And I find myself falling short, or I don't know about that. But it is ours to listen harder. It is ours to open our minds and open our hearts as wide as we possibly can and embrace what John is setting before us week after week and to be able to say, as we do, my Lord and my God. And as we say that, we know that the blessing of the living God will be ours, as he himself said, blessed, blessed, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Well, let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you again for your holy word, and we praise you for the faithfulness of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life indeed, our Lord and our God. And we pray that his words would be inscribed upon our hearts, that our very lives might be the paper in which the indelible words of his gospel are inscribed in large letters, that we might bear fruit unto eternal life. Our Father in heaven, we, we pray that we are a, a people too much of our age and not enough of the Lord, and we pray that you would deliver us from the allure and attraction of, as we prayed earlier, the world and the flesh and the devil and every false god, and even if there are so-called gods in heaven or on earth, 
as indeed there are many gods and many lords. We say again that for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we live. Grant us to see the beauty, glory, love, wisdom, goodness, grace, and strength that are ours in Jesus Christ, and how glorious it is that in him we have beheld your face, that we might know you, serve you, and truly live for you. Satisfy us and fulfill us and glorify us in Jesus, we pray.